Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Data Minds, the podcast where I interview top data people from around the world. Today, we have a special guest on the show. His name is Eric Colson. Eric is the chief algorithms officer at a company called Stitchfix. S-T-I-T-C-H-F-I-X dot com. Stitchfix dot com. Check them out. Stitchfix is pretty cool. Um, basically, what they do is they're your personal stylist. They will pick out clothes for you and send them right to your door. And they do this with machine learning with humans in the loop. And I highly recommend their blog, multithreaded.stitchfix.com slash blog. One of my favorite articles they've written is Personalizing Beyond the Point of No Return. It's fascinating stuff. What I find so cool about Stitchfix as a company is that data science is a key part of strategic differentiation that makes them so special. And Eric Colson built the data team from zero to over 80 in the last couple of years at Stitchfix. In this episode, we're going to go into Eric's journey to data science, some tough challenges and moments in his life along that journey. We're going to learn about the data science team at Stitchfix, how they execute machine learning with humans in the loop, what the various teams at Stitchfix do, who Stitchfix is an ideal fit for, and much, much more. I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. It was a pleasure to interview Eric, and I think we're actually going to have to do a second episode with him to hit on some of the other questions that um, have come up along the way. Without any further ado, I give you Eric Colson, Chief Algorithms Officer at Stitchfix. Enjoy the show. Eric, uh, great to see you, man. Thanks for joining the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to do this interview. It's been in the queue for, what, like almost a month now? Oh, I think longer than that, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably two months. I know you're a busy guy. Um, I guess question number one, um, where did Eric Colson grow up? <laughs> and what did, <laughs> and, and what, was your, what was your childhood dream? Uh, interesting story. Well, uh, I guess in terms of I guess a professional life. Um, I'm actually doing more or less what I envisioned. However, I mean, I had the context all wrong. And um, that is, I knew I wanted to do something with numbers and systems and automated systems that would make decisions and all that. In my head, I had, um, you know, pictures of um, big machines with flashing lights, kind of Star Trek style. Um, and I was probably thinking more of something like a NASDAQ type of system. Um, I didn't have all the context for how business decision making was done at the time, but I did imagine something like this. And I, I, um, you know, even like as a little kid, I, I dreamed about, you know, those flashing lights and it wasn't until, um, undergrad that it started to come more clear. Um, though still misguided, uh, I, I was, uh, uh, my undergrad was in economics, and I became enamored with uh, calculus, right? Economics uses a lot of calculus, um, but not just purely for the elegance of the math, but rather it's applied, it's application um, to things like pricing models and supply and demand, all these things that were beautiful theory in um, economics, but uh, as I would find out once I entered the workforce, very rarely applied in practice. Um, and it became that quest, um, that kind of drove, uh, into this because I found the, um, uh, the kind of differentiating using data to make smart decisions 
was a very noble way to compete. That was the, the phrase I used in my graduate school um, application. Uh, you know, they make you write an essay, and I remember uh, writing that phrase. It's such a noble way to compete because you're using data to make things better for both the company and the customer. Well, that's a great way to compete as opposed to uh, the traditional barriers to competition such as regional monopolies or um, economies of scale, et cetera. So that's what kind of drove this whole thing, um, uh, you know, sort of request for these. It's almost like childlike um, to, to, to see those graphs in real life, real life, like things like demand curves and price elasticity um, and, and finding the peaks of those curves where two lines intersect. Um, you know, as a naive undergrad, I thought those things actually happened in business. And at the time, they really weren't. This was new stuff. Um, and so I entered the workforce with those aspirations and I quickly learned that uh, that was still at the time mostly theory and I had some work ahead of me to do. Very interesting. So you were very, very optimistic and excited and <laughs> I guess just kind of like most undergraduate students are very full of na naivete. Um, where did you apply to grad school and, and what was the title of that paper? I find that very, that's so interesting. Yeah, so that, I went to uh, grad school at Stanford, um, a department, niche department called uh, Management Science and Engineering. Um, it's you can think of it as kind of a hybrid of um, math, statistics, uh, business, and economics. And of course, I think it has some roots in operations research as well. A, a sort of amalgam that they combined to create this new department, new-ish. It's probably now about 15 years old, but at the time it was new. I'd love to hear more about your path to data science and when did you, after graduating or um, and after doing your, was it was your PhD or was it your master's? I'm sorry. No, my master's. Your master's. Um, after graduating, how did you get on the path to data science? But before we get into that, um, was there a crucible moment along your journey? And by crucible moment, I mean a defining moment or a challenge or a low time in your life that really forged you into who you are today. Oh, yes. Um, all right. Well, actually, maybe we should jump into your first question. I'll come to that. Okay. Uh, you were asking um, uh, sort of uh, what happened after undergrad when I entered the workforce. Mm -hmm. um, so as I mentioned earlier, I had all these naive beliefs that companies actually operated in the way uh, that, that was illustrated in microeconomic textbooks, right? So I, again, undergraduate economics, particularly I was interested in microeconomics. I actually could care less about the macroeconomic stuff. I really loved the way companies made decisions and how to optimize companies. So that's microeconomics. So I naively believed that that's what companies actually did. Now we're getting there today, but not back then. We're nowhere near this. Um, and so when I entered the workforce, my first job, I don't know how I talked my way into this, but I had a, my first job was a statistician and I had, I had barely any stats as an undergrad economics and they forced you to take some stats and I may have taken one or two other courses, but that's it. Um, and I somehow talked my way into this, I guess, and I can do this. Um, and, and somebody took a shot at me and it was wonderful. <laughs> I actually got to do things, um, uh, that were merely theory at that point, but actually um, for the first time being able to apply them. Um, so this was, um, you know, uh, 1994, and they were just about, um, uh, machines were just about um, coming on the point where they had to compute resources to be able to do these things, and data was beginning to be collected. And so I was able to 
do things like I mentioned, like pricing studies and um, uh, um, you know, trying to match up supply and demand using purely quantitative methods. And, uh, you know, I thought that this had been done for 50 years before because it was in the theory, it was in the textbooks. But no, it turns out none of this had been done. Um, very, very few companies were doing this at all. It was still intuition um, and gut. Um, so what I learned uh, coming out of uh, undergrad of economics into the workforce is, yeah, those things are, are, um, uh, are wonderful things to apply to a business that can make a huge impact. And that's why they, they hired me. They wanted me to do this stuff for them. And yet I didn't realize it was unprecedented. Like they just haven't done it yet. And the reason it was unprecedented is it needed um, more diversity and skill than what we learned in um, school. So again, undergrad in economics, you learn the theory, but to be practical, you needed other skills. And so you needed things like statistics to be able to quantify the shapes of those curves. Remember, like all these, you know, finding the peak of a curve is great. You can use calculus to do that, but how do you know what the curve is in the first place? You need mm. statistics to do that, to fit those curves, right? And then to do anything with a reasonable amount of data, you're going to need some computer science skills, right? And so these are things I had to go and learn um, in, in order to be practical in that quest to find those, um, uh, you know, curves and, and, and apply them to the business. So that, my crucible moment was when uh, you, you, you had, I realized that nobody's going to do this for you. I guess you know, my quest was uh, around those curves, and I, I suppose it's a blessing because if I had had a statistician that worked for me, um, I could have asked that person to you know, fit the curves and just tell me what it is. And if I had um, somebody skilled in computer science to work with, uh, at the time considered big data, it was merely like seven terabytes, which is peanuts today, but at the time that was actually really big, um, they could write you know, that person could have written the code for me that would able to process the data um, that would need that you need in order to fit those curves and so forth. But there was no such people and nobody was willing to do that for me. I, I didn't even know exactly what to ask for myself. Um, and so probably the best thing I did, and, and this is only in hindsight, was roll up my sleeves and do it myself. So I had to go back to school and educate myself or read from books or um, learn from others. Um, the skills of a statistician and the skills of a computer scientist. And all this was just a means to the ends of, you know, kind of trying to quantify those graphs and, and be able to make an impact to this company. So that was probably my, my big thing. I didn't know then what um, an impact that was going to have in my, my life to, um, to acquire those skills and to be diverse. I probably would have been just as happy uh, focusing only on the economic part of it um, if somebody else would have done those things for me, but to my good fortune, it turns out that acquiring those skills got me well-rounded and um, enabled, to be, enabled me to be more autonomous, and I think that's kind of got me where I am today. What questions were you asking yourself along the journey? I mean, I find that very interesting that you were so naive and hopeful and very much an optimist, and then you go into the real world and you discover, wow, like all this you know, everything that I studied in microeconomics, I can't really apply unless I have this other skill set. Um, but a lot of other people don't ask themselves those questions. They don't seek, um, they don't seek everything out. So I'm curious what was going through your mind and, and, and how did you come up with the right questions to ask? 
and figure out, oh, like I need to acquire these programming skills. I need to acquire stats knowledge. I need to acquire um, just basically all the whole gamut of skills that you would need, which was the precursor to what we know as now know as, I guess, data science. And everybody still just defines data science slightly differently. So I guess I might ask, um, how did you ask yourself those questions? And then how do you define data science? Yeah, a great question. Um, so I wouldn't claim that it was as prescient, prescient as you made it sound like I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just after um, the answers to these microeconomic questions. I wanted to um, get the shapes of those curves and so forth. Mm. Um, and so I'd ask people like, oh, gosh, how does one go about like um, lifting that curve out of this data? Right. And people would show me certain techniques. And then like even the, the statistician was at the time un, unskilled in how to process that data. Like they say, you can you get it in a SAS data set for me. I can help you. And you know, that was the tool of the trade back then was SAS. Um, but that person couldn't get the data into the set. So I would say, all right, well, how do you get it in the SAS? I don't know. I talked to the IT guy. So I talked to the IT guy and, you know, he, he he had no idea what it was after, and he's like, well, if you don't want to access the data, you have to go through this thing. And so you learn the skills, um, you know, the relational database was now emerging at that point, so you have to pick up skills like SQL, um, and you, you just kind of go. You just grab, um, you know, a book or something to help you. Um, you can usually find somebody um, that knows something and, and then say anything, some sample code. And to be honest, it's a horrible way to, learn these skills you're learning sort of the um, narrow practical side of it first and it's actually dangerous to do without the fundamentals both on the computer science side and the statistics side so i was you know probably doing egregious things now in hindsight um, as i finally got fundamentals later but i was doing what i had to do to be practical um so that's it wasn't like a beautiful path. I got to learn this and I want to go do that first and then do that. And, you know, it was kind of trial and error. Do it as you, uh, uh, you know, go make it up as, as you go along. Um, uh, as opposed to, you know, knowing ahead of time what's exactly what skills I needed. Um, does that answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah. That's you're very much, you're very entrepreneurial in that quest for yeah, knowledge and that, problem solving. You know, that same essay I mentioned, uh, my Stanford grad school application, I remember, this was before the term data science was coined, I remember I ended that essay, uh, it kind of opened up with this noble way to compete, and this is what I want to do, blah, 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 and then I remember the last paragraph, I don't remember it verbatim, uh, I could look it up, but it was something like, I don't know what to call myself, I'm one part um, statistician and another part business person and another part computer scientist. I, I don't have a name for my amalgamated profession and it, it kind of left it there dangling. Um, and you know, I think later after uh, a few people, uh, you know, DJ and Jeff Hammerbacher had coined the word data science as sort of latched onto them. Like, yeah, I think that's what it is. Uh, so, uh, I wish I had that word earlier on. Nice. Thank you. Um, can you tell our listeners about Stitch Fix and, I mean, and what does Stitch Fix do? And then what are the types of profiles or personas that are Stitch Fix customers? Yeah, so uh, the interesting thing is Stitch Fix, we sell clothes. And it, uh, a lot of people kind of raise an eyebrow at me when I tell them I do you know, algorithms for a clothing company. It's hard to see what do algorithms have to do with clothes. Uh, 
you need to explain the business model before they get it. So the business model is this, you know, you can buy clothes from us, but nowhere on our website will you find a browse page or a search box and you, you won't even get recommendations there on the website or in the app. At Stitch Fix, the customer does not pick out clothing. And this is the whole value proposition, right? We wanted to provide a place where we could do this as a service for people. Uh, the burden of shopping is is immense, right? Like whether you're going to brick and mortar stores or shopping online, either way, it's a daunting process. It's time consuming, and then you have to make a a, a lot. Of, you have to perform a lot of this what I call unpaid work. You have to, you know, search and filter and research and read reviews and all this stuff. And a lot of people just say, "Gosh, I wish somebody else could just do this." For me, like, uh, what do I, I? I could probably learn about what's in style right now if I did the research, but I'd much rather just somebody tell me. And I could probably learn how things are supposed to fit me or what my size is. But if somebody can do this for me, I will take it. And so that's the service that we're providing is, um, you know, aggregating all that data so that we can do this for you. And of course, clothes are very personalized, so we have to learn a lot about each of our customers. Um, but at the end of the day, this service we designed to be an effortless experience for the customer, meaning they can, once they have their style profile filled out, this is like a, uh, you know, a form where they can enter all that information about themselves, um, you know, size, height, weight, age, preferences for fit and style, etc. Once we have all the information, the experience is purely effortless. They really hit like a button saying, send me some stuff. That's it. So we pick out items um, and we package them up in a box. We send it to the customer sight unseen. They don't see it until it hits their doorstep and then they can try on the clothes and experience them in the privacy of their own home, with their own wardrobe, etc. So it's a much nicer way to shop, but the most of the value is in the um, knowledge that goes into the recommendations, helping people with um, uh, you know avoiding all that unpaid work of knowing their size or what's in style or how to wear things. How much time do you estimate that you save the average buyer um, in terms of unpaid work and research? And I mean, I'm, I personally um, definitely believe in decision fatigue. I think it's a real thing. Um, there's a reason why Obama has like three suits. Zuckerberg wears the same hoodie and t-shirt all the time. And my friends, they often make fun of me because I often wear the same things. And I was blown away when I had lunch with you at Stitch Fix. I've never seen so many data scientists and and engineers who were so well dressed. <laughs> yeah, I think the employee discount plays a, a role in that. Uh, <laughs> I bet. But so... yeah, it, it's it's. I don't know how much time is um, spent on shopping. Um, there are people that enjoy it, but many others that uh, would rather avoid it. And and trips to the mall are just. I think they're happening less and less these days. Um, uh, they're extremely time consuming and usually fairly disappointing. Absolutely. And like I said earlier, um, online shopping is no picnic either. Um, that there's, uh, you know, uh, an abundance of choice, which is great, but then you, you get that paradox of choice where you're just overwhelmed and the decision making thing really is egregious. Like reading reviews, like things like that are, should be objectively sized things like shoe size there's a ton of variation right i'm size 10 and a half that shouldn't vary but it turns out in certain brands i need to wear like a 10 and in other brands i need to wear an 11 and a half right and all that knowledge should be just done for me um you know as we 
evolved the consumer experience, we expect, um, I think things have already been changed, right? The expectations of the consumer. But as we go forward, I truly believe in a few years from now, people are going to be saying, gosh, remember we used to have to go to stores and we had to wander around and find things for ourselves? What was that all about, right? I think already the expectations have been changed that this will be done for people. That's amazing. And what is the, do you have like a primary um, like portrait of a user or like a demographic or any psychographic data that you can share? Um, or maybe that's proprietary, but I'm just curious. No, the answer is, you know, well, we do both women's and men's now. Um, in the beginning, we're women only. And, you know, like all companies, you, you try to, I want to really get to know our customers well, right? And you, you, a lot of companies, it's a, it was a popular thing to do know, a decade ago, is you create these personas, right? A fictitious representation of your idealized customer. Mm -hmm. And you, you create a name for her and all that kind of stuff. You might even have a picture of her and, you know, in her us and her lifestyle setting, etc. So, uh, you know, we had with good intentions, uh, uh, folks set out to do that. And of course, they didn't think there'd be one, but maybe a handful of these personas. Um, and, you know, we went down the path that we wanted to do this empirically, what would the data tell us is our ideal uh, persona, or persona as a handful of them. And when I looked at the data, I found that we really have nothing that can be generalized. Right. I mentioned the style profile thing. This is where you can enter information about yourself. And there's mm -hmm. over 50 questions that we ask. Wow. I, I took just two of those questions. Um, you know, these are things with multi-valued answers, but just two of those questions. And I defined, attempted to define segments um, based on their responses to those questions. So if two customers answered the same way, they go into the same segment. And so I, you know, grouped or equivalent to, you can think of this as a group by in, uh, uh, in SQL. Uh, I, I, I've grouped by these defined segments, meaning they share preferences, they go in the same segment. And to my astonishment, they were the largest segment had a mere 1% of our customers, <laughs> meaning it was not representative of all of the total customer base. Uh, you know, and then all the other segments had some tiny fraction. So this is extremely long tail of of segments, meaning like there is no dominant factor. So it became, huh, our customers, there is no commonality. We can't draw a generalization of our clients. Every one of our clients is unique, nearly. Well, using two of those questions alone made them almost all unique. As I mentioned, the largest segment had 1% of the customers. So if you add a third uh, response in there, then they're almost surely become all unique. All unique and of course, with 50, there are all uh, segments of one, right? Every client is unique. So this actually jived when um, another astonishing moment for me is, you know, we, we personalize. That's our business. We're a personalization company. Yet there's no mandate that thou must send, you know, send different things to different customers. It's just that we're personalizing to each customer's taste. And like I just mentioned, all of our customers are unique. And so therefore, it would be nice if it turned out that all of the shipments happened to be unique. Like no two shipments had the same items in it. And when I looked at this, there's no mandate to make that happen. It's just, it happens naturally. I looked and I said, haven't you sent the same thing twice? And to my surprise, we hadn't. It was astonishing. Like, wow. Cause we have some popular items. You figure that's gotta be shared between two different shipments. And of course that, that does happen. Um, that the same thing has been sent to different 
customers. But when you look at all five, what are the chances of all five being the same? It just hadn't happened. And by this time, we had already sh- shipped millions of fixes. We call, a fix is our word for a shipment. <laughs> um, so we've sent millions of these things, and they'd already had, they're already unique. So I was impressed by that. Now, of course, I did a little bit of math, and it turns out that shouldn't have been so surprising. We keep our inventory very vast. <laughs> and so this becomes, if you remember from uh, undergraduate math, um, an N choose K problem. How many different ways can you make um, – how many different sets of you know, K things can you make from N? Mm-hmm. Um, and it turns out that our we keep our inventory so vast that that actually is an astonishingly big number. It goes into the trillions really quickly because of those factorial terms. So it turns out that, okay, by random luck alone, you would not expect any two uh, customers to get the same five things in their shipment. And so, okay, it, yes, it's probably personalization, but even... Um, because of the vastness of inventory, we wouldn't have expected that to happen anyways. So that was the, the more mathematical explanation. That's unbelievable. I guess the only true thing that all of these customers have in common, um, since they're so unique, is that it is a pain in the ass to shop. <laughs> and they want yes. and they want and they want that pain and they want that work removed. Um, I was reading one of the blog posts that you wrote. It was called um, believe it was personalizing beyond the point of no return. And I have a quote in my notes here. It's a, you say, Amazon says that 35% of their sales are driven from recommendation engines. LinkedIn boasts 50%. Netflix says 75%. But at Stitch Fix, 100% of your merchandise is sold through recommendations. And you take the burden completely off the customer. But with that, it's like the battle strategy of the general who goes to war and burns the ships behind him. And there's really no way to fall back. So with your model, there's no fallback and there's a high cost of failure if you're wrong. Why, why did the founders go this route? And, or I guess, why did the founders and the company go this route? And how are you so damn good at predicting what people want? Yeah, great question. So the, the, the founder, Katrina Lake, her, aspiration was to provide this effortless service like don't worry about your wardrobe we got it covered and that meant that we we couldn't allow the customer to choose Um, two reasons one it would um, defeat the effortless clause Um, but the other one is we learned that uh, most people don't know what they want and so it's a hard thing to do to ask them to choose and they also won't get it right necessarily. We have these limited views of ourselves, and we think we know what's right or wrong for us, but we're just being narrow-minded often that sometimes we need to be pushed to discover what's right for us. Mm-hmm. And so, as you mentioned earlier, you said, oh, this must be a great service in terms of its convenience because you don't have to go to stores or do the unpaid work of shopping. And that is true. But perhaps a higher value proposition for our clients is the discovery aspect, the fact that they, we are helping them to find things they wouldn't have found themselves because they weren't open to it. Uh, again, we're, we limit ourselves in what might be the right thing for us. But when you have an expert sending you things and say, try this on, trust me, all of a sudden you say, okay, I'll give it a shot. I'm skeptical, but sure, I'll try it on. But experiencing it, trying it on, putting it on your body, looking from the mirror often changes things like, wow. I would have never thought this was for me, but I'm standing in front of a mirror now and I'm loving what I'm seeing. I love this thing, right? So that was sort of 
the, the surprise in this, right? What was merely a convenience play at the beginning, we found there's actually more value in this discovery aspect, pushing people to find things that they wouldn't have found on their own. Um, so we, we couldn't violate those, that principle of no customer choosing uh, because the moment you do, two things happen. There's one, a, a customer is going to do it him or herself, and I think they will probably not be as open to it as if somebody else did it for them. And number two, it, it, it makes you soft as um, on the algorithm side, right? What makes us um, do bold things and invest so heavily in our recommendation engine is exactly the penalties for getting this wrong, right? Um, the companies you mentioned, uh, Netflix, Amazon, LinkedIn, we've all, you know, they have great recommendation systems, but we've all received goofy recommendations at those companies, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, you buy something for your niece or nephew or, or, uh, or any other child on Amazon and all of a sudden you're getting kid recommendations for a long time. Um, Netflix, hey, I worked there five and a half years. Um, I, 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 I uh, fair game for me to uh, criticize a little bit, but we all get goofy recommendations on Netflix once in a while. Um, and that is a shoulder shrug to the consumer. You get the goofy recommendation, well, whatever, you move on. But at Stitch Fix, it's actually much more damning, right? The customers are relying on this for the, you know, relying on us to get this right. And when they get a goofy recommendation from us, they're not just shrugging their shoulders, they're often upset. Now, aside from the alienation from a customer, there's even monetary costs that we got to pay, right? We have the cost of the shipping both ways we're paying. This is a physical product. This isn't a digital recommendation. Remember, we're shipping this to the person so they can experience it. Uh, we're not showing an image or a, on a web website or on an app. We're actually paying the shipping both ways. And we, it's also expensive to even have that physical inventory. We have to pay for the inventory and we have it sitting out while it's out at a customer. It's very expensive. So, you can justify crazy ideas, even to you know the costly um, expense of having humans in the loop. You can justify those things when it's that important to your business model, right? When we get this wrong, we're out a lot of money, and more importantly, we may have a very upset customer. So we really have to get this right, and that's why you see the large data science presence at Stitch Fix, and that's why you see humans in the loop, is because it's justified. I was chatting with um, with Eli Bressert the other day, and he was fondly reminiscing about his time at Stitch Fix and the original six, and then he kind of told me about how it grew to 80. And I believe that original team was yourself, Brad Klingenberg, Eli Bressert, Dara Sibley, Kian Jones, Thomas Miller, who interned three times and is now on the data platform team, and Bosker Rao. At that point in time, you were six people, was it already was it already set that you were going to invest aggressively in the data science team, and what were the challenges of of growing your team from six to eighty? And I, I'm, you might be beyond eighty now. I'm I'm not sure how many are on your team, but can you just tell me a little bit about those early days and how you got buy in to invest so aggressively? Because really, data science is such a strong point of differentiation and defensibility for Stitch Fix and the value proposition and the value that you're providing customers. I mean. It's so core to the product. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that time? Sure. Well, it, it, it was um, even before I joined, this was already a core tenant of the company. Um, again, Katrina Lank, our founder, um, she 
had this aspiration early on of she called it art and science, the blending of machine learning and expert human judgment. Uh, even at seed funding time, just the very nascent business idea. And I actually met her, I was introduced to her through a VC, and um, uh, you know, I was still at Netflix at the time. And you know, Netflix keeps you pretty busy, it's pretty hard to do anything outside of Netflix. And I would get these calls from VCs every now and then say, hey, I think uh, you know, I have something you'd be a great advisor to. Or, and I would never take the calls. I would never even be interested in hearing about the stuff. But I remember this particular VC, he called and he told me about this company, Stitch Fix, that had just barely been seed funded at this point. Um, but he, as soon as he told me that idea, uh, Katrina's idea, which was, oh, we're, we're not going to, we'll, we'll do this for the customer. We'll pick out the clothes on her behalf, like just completely take away uh, the, the pain of shopping and, and um, the burden of choosing right, that we would do this for her, that all of a sudden was interesting. Like, and I took, you know, I, I didn't stop him in mid-sentence. I actually ended up talking to the guy. I remember I was in the parking lot of Netflix uh, when this call came in, and I actually ended up talking to him, all right, tell me more about that. And it, it was perhaps some good timing at, uh, at the time at Netflix. We had literally the same week been kind of talking about some aspirational ideas for Netflix. Uh, uh, you know, there's a certain product manager at Netflix, um, and we were, we were talking about the, the recommendation engine. And he said this thing to me that made a lot of sense. He said, you know how we render about 100 recommendations at a time, right? If you go to the app or on the web page, you'll see about 100 box shots of recommendations. Um, he said, gosh, if we were really good at this, if we had more confidence, we wouldn't show 100. We'd show like 10 or maybe even five. Or actually, if we're really bold, we would just show one, one recommendation. And if you're just going to show one, you might as well just play it. Imagine that, that you just open up the, the, the app and it starts playing the very thing that you wanted to see. So that was the bold aspiration. And we were just kind of chatting about this idea, not very seriously about it. We just thought it was a great aspirational thing to do. But when I got that call from the VC, the connection was made Oh. This is kind of like that, but for clothing, because we're going to, this company, Stitch Fix, is going to be so bold, it's just going to send the stuff to the customer sight unseen, right? It's going to be so good that they're going to at least nail it on a couple of those items of merchandise um, in order for this to work out, right? And it was that boldness, that bold bet on algorithms that was attractive and made me take the call. And um, here's how it went. You know, I ended up taking the call and ended up finally meet, meeting Katrina. And we hit it off, and I, I agreed to be an advisor. I still had no interest in leaving Netflix. Uh, this was just a bold uh, capability that Stitch Fix was building. Um, I didn't have the confidence in the business model at that time. So I became an advisor. And uh, this, again, very early days, we had just a few thousand customers back then. Um, but as an advisor, I wanted, you know, I wanted access to all the data, and they set me up with that. And it was sort of an excuse to get back into hands-on stuff at Netflix. My team was over 80 people, and um, it was getting large, and I was becoming more of the administrator type of leader. Like, yeah, you don't really have much time other to do things like recruiting. Um, and with Stitch Fix, I'm like, all right, well, maybe that'll force me to get my hands dirty. And I ended up you know, working late nights, kind of tinkering with the data. And what became apparent over just a few months of advising Stitch Fix was that they were onto something. This wasn't just a, a, a very clever and bold capability that the business model was working. 
right? Uh, you know, as I watched the customer base go from a few thousand to many, many, um, at the time, like, you know, let's call it tens of thousands over just a few months. Um, and then seeing the response and of course having my wife try out the service and the ladies in the neighborhood and seeing their response, I go, wait a minute, they're on to something. And, um, and I thought, uh, you know, Katrina, she's trying to tell me all this stuff up front about how it's going to change the way we shop and all this stuff. And I thought she was just being aspirational. I wish I had listened more intently because I started, it took me a five months of tinkering with the data to realize that wasn't just aspiration. She's onto something. So five months into this advisorship, I approached Katrina and I said, you know, you're going to need to build a data science team. And I find myself envious of who gets to do that job. And I find myself wanting to throw my hat in the ring for that. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah. And so anyways, I joined in August of 2012 as an employee. So switching from advisor status to full-fledged employee. And yes, it's scary to leave Netflix and all that. But um, I joined Zero Team, just me. And again, one of the things I really do appreciate is it was the opportunity to get my hands dirty and write some code, actually do the analysis, um, you know, write the algorithms and, uh, you know, refreshing my tech skills. Um, and so that was fun for me. I was like a, you know, a, a pig in shit <laughs> diving into the data again. Uh, zero employees. Like, I mean, I had nobody. It was just me for at least the first six months. And then uh, I, I, once I felt confident enough in where we're going, I started to hire. Um, and then, um, amongst the first six of the ones that you mentioned, I think you may have missed one, Alan, but, oh, uh, sorry about that. but yeah, no, no problem. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, we, it, they were not all of a sudden here either. It was one at a time, you know, Brad was, um, uh, he was the one that really take this thing to the next level, uh, undoing my hacky styling algorithms to replace it with something with a much more principled approach. Um, and then it, that was just the beginning, right? Styling algorithms where we started and now we've spread out to um, merchandising algorithms, inventory algorithms, allocation algorithms. We even have uh, algorithms that are doing pick paths in our warehouses so the, 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 the warehouse workers don't have to walk as many miles to pick the clothes. We have uh, we even have an algorithm that will choose which algorithm to use. No kidding. Um, so it's all over the board. In fact, you know, you said we have about 80 data scientists, or we call them algorithm developers. Um, this is not 80 folks working on the same problem. This is mostly folks working on a myriad of problems, like say 50 different algorithm capabilities. So it's not like they're all teaming up on one problem. They're mostly, uh, all the roles are designed for autonomy. You build us a great capability, you get to do all the pieces and, um, and, and, and reap all the benefits of that rich context you get from doing all those pieces, right. And make a huge business impact. So that's what explains the large data science team. It's not that we're all working on the same thing. In fact, everybody thinks of the recommendation engine as our our algorithms, we only have about six working on that. The rest are doing other things, other types of algorithms. So anyways, that's my long-winded story about um, the paths of stitch fix and, and, and why we're betting so big on algorithms, right? You know, as you mentioned, we don't have the other um, barriers to entry, right? I would say, well, you know, um, traditional retailers to differentiate on different things, things like brand, right? Like mm. Prada, think of Prada. People would pay 10 times more for that merchandise because it says Prada on it. Well, Stitch Fixes have a we have a fine brand, but people aren't going to pay more because it's from Stitch Fix. Sure. Um, we don't have we don't we don't do value pricing. We're not you know we don't do any discounting. We're full price only. 
So we're not the flash sale. So we don't differentiate on price, not on brand. We don't do fast shipping. Amazon will beat the pants off us, right? We don't do uh, next day or same day shipping. You're going to wait about a week to get your stuff at Stitch Fix. Um, so if we don't have those things, how are we differentiating? Well, it's relevancy. We've got to be the best in the world at getting the right things to the right people, right? And and that's a daunting problem when the, peop- the customers are not picking it out. We have to do it for them. So that's where we differentiate is on relevancy and all these algorithmic capabilities. Thank you so much for that detailed answer. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> that was so much fun to listen to. I mean, it's great. And I know you don't have a lot of time. You're one of the busiest people I know. We only have about five minutes left. So I think, I think we might have to schedule a part two because I have so much more that I want to ask you about the hiring that you're doing, the problems that you're solving. I want to know more about what you look for in data scientists. I want to know more about um, machine learning with humans in the loop at Stitch Fix and what are the biggest lessons you've learned. I don't know if we have time right now to answer all of those. Um, with your permission, I'd love to do a rapid fire question round and just give ask you six questions that we answer really fast and then let's schedule a part two where we can actually get more in depth on uh, machine learning with humans in the loop and then also a lot of the hiring that you're doing and a lot of the problems that you're solving. Um, does that sound good? That sounds great. Okay, awesome. So this rapid fire question round is pretty much stolen from Tim Ferriss. I like his podcast and he always asks um, a few rapid fire questions just to get to know the um, guest interviewee a little bit better. Number one, Feel free to take a minute or two to answer this one. This is the most in-depth and personal of the rapid-fire questions. What is your purpose? I think my purpose, what I alluded to earlier, find those graphs, those economic theory. Let's, let's use them in a practical sense and actually apply them to companies. I think that's been my, the same quest my entire professional career. It's definitely a recurring theme through your story, and I, I love that you've never lost that dream that you've had since you were in undergrad. That's that's okay. awesome. Um, what advice would you give to your younger self, think age 20 to 25? To be more confident in whatever it is you're passionate about. Uh, I, for a long time, I think I hid my geeky inner self. I, I thought this, this quest that I mentioned I didn't talk about it much to people because I didn't think anybody would find it interesting. Uh, it's such a, a nerdy thing to to want to, uh, you know, use calculus to find um, uh, the, the best way to operate a business, right? I didn't think anybody would want to hear about that. But I think to my good fortune, uh, uh, this has come into fa- to favor, so, uh, you know, now, uh, geek chic and data science are now the cool things, right? I think it started with a book written, I don't know, probably 12 or 13 years ago, Freakonomics. Do you remember this book? I do. Uh, 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 the two, uh, the one was an economist, the other was a uh, writer. Um, reading that book was the, the first glimpses that said, hey, it's okay to talk about what you're passionate about, especially when, when you're, what, what you're passionate about is a, a very geeky thing. Because when I read that book, all of a sudden, I looked at these people with inspiration as opposed to like thinking of them as geeks. And I think, huh, they can make anything cool as long as you're passionate about it. Right. Right. Um, and so now I'm much more comfortable talking about those things. Of course, uh, I'm, like I said, I'm uh, good fortune of it actually being kind of cool these days. So it's not necessarily geeky, but so I I got lucky, but that was, 
B, my advice is, yes, you're passionate about those, those things. And to quote Steve Jobs, do what you love. Go ahead and do those things. Because I might have made, uh, if I wasn't so passionate about it, I might have made a different decision to, to do something that was sexy at the time. Software sales. Some of my friends went into software sales. And they uh, had very lucrative careers. And that just wasn't my thing. I couldn't do the sales thing. I was very passionate about these numbers. That's great advice to anybody. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Um, th and thank goodness you were born in the time that you were born. <laughs> yeah, such luck. Uh, and 10 years sooner, I would something different would have happened. 10 years later, I guess I, I, I you know, would have uh, been quicker to call myself a data scientist, but I, I would have missed out on that on the, the nascent times, the, uh, which I think gives me such great context of, you know, you, you talk about old people talking about how hard it was in the old days, right? Mm -hmm. But it's, it does give you good context about how hard it was to gather data back then and how you had to appreciate the scarce compute resources you had. And we don't have those problems as much anymore, um, but it gave you great historical context of where this stuff was coming from. Yeah. These next couple of questions are really fast. Do you listen, okay. to, do you listen to any podcasts? Uh, exactly one, uh, Gladwell's Revisionist History. Okay. What literature do you hand out to friends and family the most often? This can be blog posts, um, it can be books, um, kind of something that you give to others that you just, it's like a book that you love or a comic book that you love or a blog that you love. Like, what do you send to your friends and family? Um, probably falling on deaf ears here, but I do often send out two types of books. Uh, one is, uh, I have a weird quirky passion for evolution by natural selection. So there's, uh, three wonderful authors, authors on the subject, E.O. Wilson, Richard Dawkins, Stephen J. Gold. They're all just excellent writers. And, um, uh, the way they describe things uh, is, is, so vivid, but anyways, they all tend to be about evolution by natural selection. The other one um, is Nassim Taleb, his series of books, Fooled by Randomness, The Black Swan, hmm. um, uh, and uh, Anti-Fragile. Now, he's a little bit polarizing. I happen to love him. <laughs> I, I, could, I wish there were certain traits that he wasn't quite so, uh, such rough edges on him, but boy, I think he's an articulate guy and, I, and just such a crisp thinker. And so I often rec recommend those books, those two sets of books, um, but I'm not sure that people ever take me up on those. I'm a big fan of The Black Swan. I'll have to read the others that you mentioned. I haven't read those ones yet. They're wonderful. Yeah. When you hear the word successful, who do you think of and why? Interesting. Uh, boy, I think of probably two different contexts. There's uh, those who are lucky um, and, uh, you know, if you were to, they're uh, usually some successful entrepreneur, but I always have the skepticism, was it luck? Meaning if you could replay history a hundred times over, would they always come out the winner? I think often people get lucky um, in the entrepreneurial sense, um, many business leaders, for example. Um, the other measure of success, but you would still call them successful. But the other measure of success is somebody who's mastered their domain. And that is less lucky. It's more uh, evidenced by hard work. So folks that have made it to the top of their game, whether it's in um, algorithms or software or economics, the folks that have done the, um, uh, the works that, that have pushed the uh, community forward. So those are the two ways I look at success. I guess one's more flattering than the other. <laughs> I do love the idea of mastering a craft. It's a very noble and romantic thing to, to master something. Um, when you hear the when you hear the word punchable, who or what do you think of? 
punchable in the violent sense. <laughs> yeah. uh, gosh, a certain president comes to mind at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I won't be able to get past that right now. Okay. Um, on the flip side, who would you like to emulate and why? Boy, uh, I don't know if I have anybody specific in mind. Um, following on the point about mastery, anyone who has mastered their craft, and if you can watch uh, a person uh, who has mastered something when they're in flow, this is the concept of flow from, um, I can never pronounce his name, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, Chik I believe, mm-hmm. um, the author of the book Flow. If you watch anyone, regardless of what they're doing, that has mastered something and they're in flow at the moment, it is just awe-inspiring to watch. And this goes from anything from sports to, you know, giving, uh, you know, to writing math on a whiteboard. When you watch somebody do that, it is just amazing. Even weird, quirky things. I watched, a, a, it was on Google Ventures video, a guy doing human beatbox. Now, I don't know nothing about human beatbox. I don't know that I even care about it. <laughs> But this guy, I, I assume, was the, the master of, the, the, of that domain. And watching him do it was inspiring. I'm like, wow, that's incredible what he's doing. And watching his focus as he's in flow. So that could be applied to anything. And I think that is what I would love to emulate, is to get there myself one day. Me too. Me too. <laughs> who, else, uh, who else should I interview? Oh, I would love to hear something from DJ Patel as he's exiting the White House. I want to find out what goes on over there. <laughs> Anybody else come to mind? I, I met DJ actually at a, a hackathon that we had at Galvanize with Bay's Impact. It was He's so nice, so kind, and so down to earth. I would love to interview him. Thank you for that recommendation. Anybody else top of mind? Oh, I love hearing about um, how other data science leaders think. Um, uh, Hillary Mason comes to mind. Um, you know, Monica Regani. Um, mm-hmm. Boy, it's just we all have such different perspectives. Of course, I know these folks when we talk occasionally, and we do have different points of view. Um, and I love to hear the contrast. So uh, I'd love to hear a podcast with any of those folks. Okay, I'll do my best. Um, Hillary Mason, I did interview already, so that episode will be coming out after yours. So I'm Perfect. Excited. I'm excited for that. Um, thank you so much, Eric. I greatly appreciate your time. Um, this was fun. Um, I look forward to part two. And thank you for taking time out of your day to be on the show. My pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thank you.